1: About 80% of the calls to 911 each year in the U.S. are made for nonviolent, non-property offenses. Someone's playing loud music at night, there's a homeless person who may need medical help, those kind of things. So there's a small but growing movement to redirect some of those non-emergency calls to unarmed crisis workers, people who are specially trained to respond to mental health and other issues. Cities moving in that direction point to fatal police shootings where officers, often without proper crisis intervention training, Fired their weapons while responding to a call somebody needed help. Whitebird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon has already been doing this kind of work for 30 years. And in cities, including Chicago, well, they're exploring this model. In just a bit, we'll hear from a Chicago alderman and someone from Oakland, California. But first, let's talk with Benjamin Brubaker. He's the clinic co coordinator at Whitebird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon. Ben, welcome to Reset. Thank you for having me. All right, so let's get right into this. It's called CAHOOTS, and tell me more about CAHOOTS.
0: CAHOOTS uh, stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, but it was also our agency's maybe tongue-in-cheek acronym um, describing the relationship that we had with our local public safety law enforcement, where we were going to work as an outside human service agency, uh, contracted, though, under the city's uh, public safety uh, Eugene Police Department. Uh, The program started about 30 years ago now, but we wanted a way of kind of um, being able to tie directly into the non-emergency emergency emergency response lines, and public safety actually approached us about an opportunity to do that. So we brought a model forward of a medic, uh, EMT or better, and a crisis worker, somebody with some three years plus mental health experience that we would do some extensive training with internally, uh, and that partner team would actually wear police radios, be dispatched mm-hmm. through the normal dispatch systems, and respond to calls that were non-criminal in nature, um, stuff that had behavioral health, uh, substance abuse, intoxication, uh, mental health, maybe even just uh, you know a, a momentary crisis that somebody might be experiencing, uh, and go out and respond to those types of calls.
1: Yeah, What kind of impact have you seen firsthand? Because you've been a crisis worker for over 10 years.
0: It's hard to compare before after here locally uh, because we've been around for 30 years. Um, But as far as my own individual experience with it, I would say that there's been many, many calls that I've been able to step into and handle that were really somebody just struggling with some kind of maybe ongoing behavioral health issue um, or maybe just intoxicated in public and just needing to get somewhere safe uh, and really have been able to then help get those people somewhere safe, deal with the issue, keep the community safe, um, but also then help tie that individual into existing services, um, service providers, to really get them support to hopefully kind of better their situation. So
1: tell us how it works, because you're, you're outfitted with a, with a police radio, and, and you have the ability to communicate. So who makes the decision? Do you, is there a call comes in and says somebody's drunk on the curb? Do the police make the decision? That goes to you guys. Uh, who, mm-hmm. How does that yeah. work?
0: So the, the dispatcher ultimately is, is uh, working off a dispatch protocol, and we work closely with law enforcement to refine and develop that protocol over time, and frequently refer back to it um, to help make sure that things are that we're responding uh, appropriately. Additionally, because our teams are on the police radio, we'll hear, hear calls come in for services, and we might be familiar with an address or an individual, mm. and we will sometimes even tap into that call and say, "Hey, would you like us to stage for that?" Or, "Hey, you know, we wouldn't mind handling." that if you would rather us maybe go. And what we hear from our law enforcement partners here locally is that they kind of consider us a force multiplier. It allows them to really focus on the work and, and the stuff that they're out there to do, the stuff that's more criminal in nature, in protecting and serving the community. Uh, additionally, we hear from law enforcement all across the country, they're tired of being the de facto mm-hmm. mental health response and picking up the places where our overall uh, funding structures, society in general, is, is letting people kind of fall through the cracks, and it all kind of falls on our first responders.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. That's one of the things that is at the core of the defund the police movement. That may not be the words that you want to use, but the idea of reallocating funds uh, to social services agencies and changing the way that we respond to to calls and to crime. What's the training like for crisis workers?
0: We estimate that it's around 500 hours total um, because we have not only internal classes that we send people through to kind of um, help you know, imbue them with our kind of communication approaches, philosophy, um, but also we do more specific classes on police radio, on specific kinds of issues like self-harm or suicidality. And then a lot of our our training is really experiential where they're actually riding as a third person on the two-person team. They ride as a third person for many, many months um, while they're training up until uh, we decide to kind of cut them loose as, as a part of the partner team.
1: What's the cost to run CAHOOTS? I mean, really, at the end of the day, and I don't know if anyone who's listening to this uh, program right now is like, ah, oh, I wonder what the budget line item is, but what does it take to, to run a program like this, especially when we're talking about uh, reallocating funds?
0: Well, I mean, we definitely uh, consider our, like, kind of cost per call as being much cheaper than what it takes to send out law enforcement, and there's a number of reasons for that, equipment being one of them, but but a number of others. So the cost is, is is much reduced when you look at the cost per call. We also know that we're saving the local system a lot of money because of that reduction. Uh, we're able to handle actually a significant uh, amount of the calls. Uh, last year we handled you know over twenty thousand calls for service uh, in our area, um, and did that for you know, what basically amounts to uh, about a million to $2 million budget for two vans running 24-7 in our larger metro area and a third van that runs some overlap time. So um, on that end, you know, it, it we definitely know there's cost savings. We also, though, when we talk about, you know, reallocating funds, I think there's a lot of other people that benefit. Anybody that does the public health benefit uh, in your area, the public health insurance, the taxpayers end up saving money from the amount of ER diversion we do. Because a lot of the times public safety has their hands kind of tied that they have to take people in a number, any number of situations to the ER. And our workers, because there's a mental health trained person on the van, are able to sometimes help people, um, you know, ground back out and, and de-escalate in situ right where they're at, uh, and other times connect them up with maybe existing service providers or more appropriate services. And by doing that, we estimate the cost savings to be millions of dollars um, just in the amount of ER diversion that we do. And so I think it's important as you're looking at at how we kind of reimagine our public safety, it's also important to remember there's other pockets out there that, that really could reach out and help support these kinds of programs. Yeah.
1: And my last question for you, what's the measure of success?
0: I do measure it somewhat in the cost per call, I do measure it in the kind of data point of ER diversion, Um, but I'd also just say that it's measured for me and that each person that we're able to assist and connect with services and um, maybe stop a cycle of being involved with law enforcement and getting in more trouble, that that each of those people that we help is definitely a measure of success. And And I'd say, you know, when we get feedback from the community, it is overwhelmingly glowing. People really appreciate that we're here, that we're able to help. And because Whitebird Includes have been around in Eugene for so long, uh, almost every meeting I'm in, somebody can say, well, yeah, you helped my friend. You helped a family member of mine. You did the same for us. And I think that that's really how we're measuring success on the larger.
1: Benjamin Brubaker is a clinic co-coordinator at Whitebird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, Ben, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it.
0: Yep, no problem. Thank you.
1: Fascinating. When many cities are reaching out to Whiteberg Clinic to explore whether to adopt their emergency response model, Oakland, California, they're in the process of putting together a pilot program modeled after CAHOOTS. Joining us now to discuss Ann Jenks. She's an organizer for the Coalition for Police Accountability. Ann, welcome to Reset. Thank you. The program in in Oakland is called the Mobile Assistance Community Responders of Oakland, or MACRO. When you hope to implement this program, how will it work? Would it be similar to what Ben was saying about how the CAHOOTS model works in Eugene?
2: It's similar. Uh, we certainly had a series of conversations with the folks at CAHOOTS uh, because you know they have uh, a model that clearly does work. Uh, but we spent about a year bringing together service providers and advocates and activists from uh, many communities in Oakland and talking to existing responders and folks in underserved communities to really figure out what We needed to do to identify and address the unique needs and neighborhoods and resources of Oakland. So our program differs in a couple of ways, but uh, it relies heavily on some of the the very successful and unique elements of the COATS model.
1: As I asked Ben and Eugene, a lot of it is what are the measures for success? And then also when you talk about allocation of resources. Uh, that's a big part of of what you know this is all about. At the end of the day, how much would it cost the city of Oakland, and how much would uh, you there we would see success on the ground?
2: So one of the parts of the cahoots model that most attracted us is that it looks at responding to these calls as part of the public safety budget. So it's not just a do good program where you're competing with other nonprofits who are doing important work for that small pie. Uh, of, you know, money that's available for those kinds of services, it recognizes that you're responding to emergency calls mm-hmm. that otherwise would be responded to less successfully by police. And it's funded out of the public safety budget. And that was a very attractive piece of it for us. Along, obviously, in terms of the success, it's ensuring an appropriate response for our residents who are having a wide range of reasons that they're calling dispatch, uh, well beyond, um well beyond just mental health calls, as, as Benjamin mentioned. Um, and also, when it's appropriate, facilitating the connection to services, because one of the things that we has really been laid bare in COVID is that many of our residents have tremendous challenges in accessing both mental health care and in healthcare care in general. And one of the things that CAHOOTS has really shown us as a, as a fascinating model is they really help people get those services if it's giving them a ride figuring out what to do with their dog while they're getting services mm. you know doing what's called a warm handoff where they go with the person and make sure the person is connected they don't just drop them off you ask what you what are kind of the measures of success the measures of success are going to be a more appropriate response to these calls and doing it uh, in a more appropriate way than than the police are currently doing it right
1: Ms. Jenks, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. To think about the scale of this, to go from Eugene to Oakland to Chicago, that could be the plan. Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez recently proposed a new crisis hotline modeled after the program we're talking about, and she joins us now to discuss. Uh, Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, welcome back to the program.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We've been talking about this CAHOOTS program. It's something that that you want to model a crisis hotline after. Why?
3: Um, well, we are seeing uh, across the nation how the impact that, that, that we have had in uh, addressing every single crisis that we have, every failure of the system with policing, right? Uh, we have seen the cost of that not only in human life, which has been horrible, but also in the finances of the city that is stressed in so many times in order to be able to meet the needs of its residents. Um, So, I believe that it is time for us to take a step back um, and think about a more holistic way to meet the needs of the people, um, at the same time making sure that people who uh, have challenges with mental health um, are taken care of, uh, that we move away from punitive measures, where. People who are struggling either with mental health or with other situations end up in contact with the criminal justice system. And we continue the, the pipeline to mass incarceration, particularly for our communities of right. color.
1: You, you know, when we talked to, uh, with Ben out of Eugene, Oregon, and runs the Cahoots program, uh, a lot yes. of it was, you know, he's talking about two vans because Eugene, mm-hmm. Oregon, is much smaller than Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> I mean, how do you do that? How do you scale that up? And where would you get the resources for something like that when it would have to be way more than two vans when you're talking about Chicago?
3: Definitely. And, and of course, this is something that can be built up, right? right. I, I don't think that we would necessarily propose, okay, we're going to start with, like, I don't know, 50 clinics, (laughs) one in each ward, you know. (laughs) We are realistic, but we do think that we need something meaningful and we need to start somewhere. Right now what we are proposing is to use uh, the network of of public mental health clinics in the city that we know that were shut down, uh, half of them by our last mayor, uh, Rahm Emanuel, because we already have that system in place, right, and use that infrastructure to provide those services, attach mobile units to those clinics, and provide that service uh, out of the mental health clinics. And as the last guest was talking about, I do think that this is a public safety issue mm-hmm. and the money should come from public safety, uh, particularly policing, right? right? Chicago Chicago invests $1.8 billion a year or roughly that amount to police our communities, right? And, and in a lot of ways, uh, most of the calls that police respond to are nonviolent offenses, One thing that I have spoken about with several commanders is that after the mental health clinics were shuttered, the calls to police increased a lot to deal with mental health, right? Right. So we have been using the wrong tool to address issues that are. So important um, uh, for particularly for vulnerable people in our
1: city. Yeah, absolutely, and we've seen that play out in Chicago in the last couple of years. And that has been something that uh, that this kind of program was designed for. Ben mentioned and Eugene having a really strong relationship with the law enforcement officials there. They feel like it's an outgrowth. It's part of policing. Does that stand in the way in Chicago because the police department is is pretty strong and and a police union as well, saying we're keeping our money. And we'll continue to, uh, to, you know, to be the first responders. Do you have to work with the police department to to recognize how this could be uh, an attribute, how this could be positive for them?
3: So, So interestingly, in Chicago, we have Superintendent Brown, who has already said that the police shouldn't be taking care of these emergencies. Like he has actually said that there's, you know, quotes. Of, of the superintendent admitting that the police should not be the responders for these kind of crises, right? And, and understanding um, how every societal failure has been put onto police to respond to them. So I think that there is a recognition of that. I think that at all levels of government and policing, there is a recognition that the police doesn't have the tools to deal with this. We are seeing how we have been paying for lawsuits every year, um, Hundreds of millions of dollars we have been spending on on police misconduct lawsuits in in a lot of ways because police is not equipped to deal with a lot of different things that we are relying on them for. So I do think that there is an opportunity to talk about this. I wanted to start the conversation because it seemed like it was like mm-hmm. like, like everybody knows that this is happening. Like I didn't make up this model, um, but but the conversation was not. I don't think that was being right. had with the seriousness that is required. Um, so that's why we introduced this, um, this this council order, and we're working with several community organizations um, to try to to make sure that it passes.
1: The mayor is engaging with the police union right now over a new police contract. This is the time to have the conversation. Do you feel that the mayor is is on board with with something that might be more out of the box like this?
3: Well, the administration is actually having the conversations. We had a meeting this week, uh, yesterday, actually, with the commissioner of public health, the commissioner of uh, OEMC, and deputy mayor of public safety, Susan Lee, alongside a lot of other people from, from different departments. And uh, I had this meeting with some of my uh, fellow colleagues from the Progressive Caucus, and it was a very productive conversation. I think uh, there's a lot of more conversations to have, but they are open to listening to this um, and working uh, with us to to get a a meaningful model. Uh, I don't know how hard we're going to have to push <laughs> for this to happen, but there is the disposition to at least have the conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we want to have you back as, as this uh, conversation continues as we see what happens with this I idea. I do want
3: to say that the Progressive Caucus has uh, incorporated this particular crisis model as one of the top priorities that we're going to be Good. pushing uh, for this budget. So I am very pleased about that. We have been having the conversations within the Progressive Caucus uh, about how necessary and how urgent this is. We cannot wait 10 more years to have something like this in Chicago.
1: Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez of Chicago's 33rd Ward. Alderman Rodriguez-Sanchez, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: And that's today's Reset. Want to hear more conversations with people who've come up with creative solutions for some of our city's toughest problems? Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. You can also check out our complete archives at wbez.org slash Reset. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you back here tomorrow for the weekly news roundup. Lots to talk about. This is Reset from WBEZ Chicago.